听 Grandeur YYFM. You're listening to YYFM. Richard Jobson is a Scottish filmmaker, TV presenter, and longtime frontman of the Skids, whose hits included "Into the Valley," "Masquerade," and "Working for the Yankee Dollar." Steve Johnson caught up with him to get an insight into some of his career highlights. So,、um, Richard, thanks very much for finding time to speak to us on Keep Cardiff Live. Really appreciate you, your time. My pleasure. One of my favourite cities on the in the world. So, oh, I, great, oh, fantastic! How lovely is that? That's brilliant. Thank you. Because we, we, we don't we, tell people in Swansea, though. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we've got a very warm relationship, people in Swansea. As you, I'm sure you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. I remember、um, the other two places that never really worked for us is、um, Portsmouth when we play there. Because the、um, Southampton used my song "The Sense of Coming" to come out to.、Uh, yeah. As soon as we start playing it, the、uh, the good people of Portsmouth turn their back. <laughs> yeah, we we get that. We're both we're both big football fans. We're both Card- Cardiff City fans. But、uh, there we are. I'm guessing you are you, you were certain. Southampton- no, 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 no. no. no just- They're pretty scary. No. Yeah. No, we just we just we just love our football. We we don't we don't do all that stuff. I support a German team called Saint Pauli in the second division. Yeah, I saw the shirt. Yeah. Yeah, I love them. So they're my team. It's more because they're a punk rock team and their fans are punks, and they they also use the sense of coming. Obviously, Saint Pauli.、Mm. All right. Okay. So are you kind of counting the other day that the Skids、uh, songs that are used by football teams, Into the Valley, Dunfermline, and Charlton Athletic, yeah, Southampton and Saint Pauli. And the New Orleans Saints in America, the American football team, and in、um, Dusseldorf, Fortuna Dusseldorf used a song called "Hurry On Boys." Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> do you, so do we you... did, a, did a live internet gig the other night. Yeah. And stupidly, we did it at eight o'clock on a Sunday night at exactly the same time as the Champions League final. I mean, <laughs> idiotic because Skids fans are essentially football fans, you know. So you've got to watch. Some fat old sixty-year-olds from Fife, or the mighty Bayern Munich versus Saudi PSG. You know, I mean, I guess you would go watch the football. Well, it's a t- tough choice. Tough choice. We did, we did okay, actually, we did pretty well considering.、Um, are you are you a Celtic fan? Are you? Of course. Of yeah. Course. Yeah. Yeah. Need you ask? Yeah. Well, the, the, the... I'm civilized. I'm kind to other people. I'm <laughs> just homophobic, nor racist. And I've got a progressive mind, and、um, I was anti-Brexit.、Uh, who would that suggest I don't support? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. When Celtic, my, for what it's worth, Celtic always been my second club for some reason.、Oh, it seems to be an affinity between uh, uh, historically Tony might remember this actually between Cardiff and Celtic fans. I don't know why there's some sort of connection.、Mm. I think、Not、I don't、sure. see many. I don't know、yeah. about that one. Certainly in England, it's normally.、Um, A bit of Arsenal, I think, because of the Irish connection. I think. Yeah.、Um, English clubs essentially always support Rangers because of Rangers fans all wave the Union Jack and yeah, and yeah, yeah. God save the Queen. And、mm-hmm. uh, during when England are playing in、uh, various championships, Rangers fans wear England tops. It's amazing. Wow.、Mm. That's because Celtic fans they think wear Irish tops. It's amazing. Yeah, the, yeah. The hatred and loathing is. Yeah. Off the scale stupidity. I, I, I've n- I've never been to an old firm game, but it's kind of on my bucket list. Would you recommend it? I don't think so. I really don't because the <laughs> the level of hatred is so insane. I mean, really? Uh, uh, 
Swansea versus Cardiff look like, mm. you know, a kind of a nice little meeting at the United Nations, you know. This is pure Balkan hatred, do you know what I mean? Uh, okay, okay. Serbia versus Bosnia, you know, it's madness. Okay. Well, I, might, I might give that a miss, but I'll, I'll keep, I'll keep a, Cel- a, a Celtic match on my list anyway. Good. Yeah. Um, we wanted to take you back, Richard, to the kind of the firstly, you know, the early days about the early days of kind of getting the skids together. What are your kind of early recollections about that? Uh, well, I was just leaving school. I was 15 and um, uh, approaching my 16th birthday and um, punk rock had happened in uh, London and the photographs. Oh, we, we didn't hear the music, but we heard the we heard about them, obviously, because of the noise it made. And um and then the photographs came out and my older brother had already been letting me listen to bands like the Velvet Underground, MC5, Iggy Pop, obviously. So I was already listening to the forerunners of punk before British punk happened. So when it happened, it just made perfect sense to me as a young person living in a working class housing estate with not much of a future. You know, I mean, the coal mines were closing. Um, the dockyard wasn't really employing anybody. The only alternative employment with the British Army and I wasn't going to do that although some of my friends did mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I looked like a punk and this guy called Stuart Adamson who was thinking about starting a band saw me at a Doctors of Madness gig in our hometown of Dunfermline and um, I was the only punk in the audience and he said do you want to audition for our band and I said sure so I went along and there was all these other guys there who were dressed like Brian Ferry you know with that nice hairdo and they were essentially hairdressers a lot of them mm. and, um, I came and arrived as a, I mean I was a punk if you know what I mean I was a feral yeah. mm. quite aggressive young guy and I was perfect for that type of band at that time you know but mm. obviously I love music so um, uh, you know I wanted the lyrics to be quite sophisticated if I could do that rather than the usual social realism about you know kind of our lives are shit. I wanted it to be a bit more exciting that. So, you know, my lyrics have always been controversial, shall we say. And yes. people think they're a little bit too abstract, if not pretentious. I disagree with all of that, of course. Um, yeah. And think I just try to do my own thing. So the, the, I'm going to ha- hand you over to Tony in a second, because Tony's a pretty big Skids fan, actually. And also he, he took some really fantastic pictures of you at a gig you played in Cardiff uh, a, a while back, which he's probably going to sh- share in a bit, if that's okay yeah, with you. Early days are from recently. No, recently. From, uh, the, 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 yeah, the recently. Tram Shed. Yeah. Tram Shed or something it was called? Tram, tram Shed, shed yeah, yeah. That was yeah. a few years ago. Oh, was, I uh... it. it was the first time I'd played in Wales since 1980, I think. And uh, I loved it. Because we used to record in Wales. Did you know that? We recorded no. um, Days in Europa at Rockfield Studios. Rockfield. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. yeah. And we um, we rehearsed and prepared most of the Absolute Game in Rockfield. And then there was a free album with the Absolute Game, and we recorded all of that in Rockfield. We used to love going there. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if the good people of Monmouth appreciated us. <laughs> we're big old Welsh farmer boys down there. Yeah, yeah. And, Kingsley. Um, not to be messed with. They were big old kind of rugby players, and um, they thought we were a bunch of Scottish pansies. <laughs> Did you see the documentary about Rockfield? Richard? I haven't seen it, but I've heard really good things about yeah, it. I think, yeah, you lo- I think you probably love it, actually. Oh. Yeah, because when we, when we were rehearsing for Absolute Game, Simple Minds were up the road, and um, they were recording, I think, their maybe their first or maybe their second album, I can't remember. 
and uh, we we did a midnight raid on them, and um, got in, broke into Rockfield and stole everything. <laughs> Brilliant. Day they went to blind panic because everything had gone, and they came down to borrow some of our equipment, and of course they found everything down the road because we were in the they had this amazing rehearsal space just down the road from the studio. Mm. So it was a uh, it was a great vibe down there. I really loved it. Do you mean what you're talking about there? You know, obviously, it's, it, it, it's kind of fun, but there's a little bit of a kind of punk ethic in that as well. But um, I've never actually seen the skids myself. I don't, I don't look at the skids and think that's a punk band. You know, I thought it was kind of more than that. You know. Well, I, I, I guess so because Stuart Adamson was such an accomplished uh, guitar player, and he'd also created his own sound very quickly. So we were never Clash copyists or Ramones copyists. You know, I think we were always a little bit more interesting than that um i once gary bushel once called us from i think he wrote for sounds at the time the mm. thinking man's oi band <laughs> <laughs> nice uh, it became one of those burdens around our neck because the skids um you know we had quite nice audiences who were quite intelligent coming to see us but we also had a lot of morons coming to us a lot of skinheads and stuff and, mm. and um when we released Days in Europa, a lot of far-right types came and Obviously, I'm very anti all of that. So it was problematic, you know. Um, but I think it was problematic for every band during that period. You know, the, the crossover between what was regarded as punk rock and the next wave. And we were essentially regarded as part of the next wave. Although we were there right from the beginning. I mean, I remember, I remember being voted in the NME as um, Scotland's best punk band. And I was very proudly told my mum that because... She was a bit ashamed of me being this punk rocker. And I said, look, I've been voted Scotland's best punk band. She said, that's great, but you're, you're the Scotland's only punk band. <laughs> which, was true, which was absolutely true. There were no other bands, you know, just us. Yeah. And, which was good news in the sense that when um, most of the bands came up from uh, England, we got to support them, even the bands from America, you know. So we supported mm. The Clash, we supported wow. The Buzzcocks right at the very beginning, even bands like Television and Blondie we supported and um, and we supported lots of bands that we didn't really, really even like, but we just did it, you know, just to get more experience. So it was a great way of kind of creating a relationship with an audience. And also, you know, as I say, I was quite feral as a kid and quite fearless because when you're 16 and a singer in a band, you know, I wasn't, we weren't exactly a boy band, you know, it was more like a gang. Mm. And um, it was just, it gave you a kind of incredible confidence you know to go on stage i've never understood shy singers you know i never really get that shoegazing thing it's never been me you know i like diving around some people call it dancing i wouldn't dare to call it that but you know i just love the energy of it and also i love communicating with the audience you know telling stories or trying to con communicate in a way that they would understand because a lot of the people i was talking to were the same age as i was you know i mean when i met the guys from the class they were already in their 20s or their mid 20s i was 16 you know i was really a genuine kid and really in the early days of punk there weren't that many people my age who were in punk bands there was a band from london called eater and they were all about the same age as me but essentially they were all the the guys in the stranglers were much much older you know and um, uh, a lot of the other bands even the buzzcocks were they look young but they were much older Tony wants to talk to you about some of that stuff. I don't know, but do you want to show one of your pictures, Tony? Yeah, you well, show me earlier the promo photo, uh, maybe. It, this is the fanboy bit. Um, it's something I, I've dug out of the archives. I don't know if you can you can quite oh, see. Oh, look at that. That's um, that, that that's a that's a Virgin promotional uh, photograph. 
Right. Yeah, that must have been around about 1980 or something like that. But, um, nope. Before then, that's 79. 79, yeah. But, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to mention there is uh, the clothes, you know. I mean, the, the clothes were so different to really what was going on in punk at the time. It was, it, you know, there was all bondage and safety pins. Well, I remember. Part, wasn't it, Tony? I yeah. And also, as we were saying a moment ago, I think we knew we needed to move on, you know, and try and move the music on. And so when we got to Rockfield to work with Bill Nelson as our producer, when we got to Wales, to work but we'd already decided that we needed to move the sound on you know to a new dimension and i think subconsciously we knew we wanted to change the way we looked as well you know just make it a little bit more different so mm. we adopted this kind of look which actually some of it is utterly ridiculous but i mean <laughs> but isn't that the beauty of being young you know yeah. it wasn't ridiculous at the time it was really cool but now you see you go, oh my god i better hide those photographs from my kids <laughs> was a big impression to me. I, I think I saw you three times over that period uh, in the Cardiff top rank, which isn't there anymore. Um, but I mean, it, uh, I went along, I suppose I was about 17, 18. Uh, and then, you know, there was this band that appeared on stage, which were um, full of energy. There's you dancing. There's a, the lyrics so different to the lyrics I've been listening to. Uh, Stuart Adamson was a massive influence on me guitar wise, as you've already said, very proficient. And just the energy coming off the band and, and the colourful clothes you were wearing, just the whole thing, anthemic songs, you know. It was so different to a lot of the stuff that I was, you know, maybe The Clash and other bands that I was listening to at the time. Well, The Clash had an incredible energy live. They were amazing and, and mm. obviously very political. Um, the Stranglers, you know, who were, weren't really a punk band, but they, they behaved like punks, had a kind mm. of mis edge and a mystery and to them that I loved. But we decided just to cut our own furrow, really. And um, uh, the energy of the songs was really what drove me into just going with it each night. And I loved that part of it. You know, I couldn't really wait to get on stage. And I, I've met a lot of people from bands from that era and later who actually are sick before they go on stage because they're so mm. nervous. And, mm. and I often go and see bands, you know, still even bands from our era. And the singers don't communicate with the audience, which really leaves me a little bit dumbfounded because to me that's the whole point of being there you know to communicate bring this energy and joy to the table and so i loved that i mean it used to be magic to be flying through the air and then in the opposite direction shoot adamson was flying through the air you know it was just so great and uh and i think we were undeniable live i'm not, I'm not sure that everybody likes the music our recordings but certainly live and i think weirdly enough even at my age now until this dreadful pandemic affected live performances and people's lives, more importantly, um, we actually still had that energy. We brought it back, you know, and I've got myself yeah. nice fit and strong and on stage for an hour and a half. And I've actually, I, I actually felt pretty much like I did when I was 16 and 17 when it's, you came to see us. It's funny you should say that because we were having a brief conversation be before we managed to talk to you now. And, um, uh, we were talking about the photographs I took at the tram shed of the gig you did, and Steve said, um, "You know what, what was what was it like?" And I said, "Well, it was great because so often when bands reform or later on you see bands and it's it's kind of like oh well, it spoils the memory of what the band was like. But what what I liked about yourselves was that energy. You still had that energy, that enthusiasm, that interaction with the crowd. You know, even after all those years, it was great to see. Oh, it was great. I mean, that was great. That whole tour was just amazing fun. You know, and um... Like I say, 
um, it was never cynical. It was never about money because we never really made that much money from it. That was never the point. You know, we just went out because we wanted to give the songs another blast. And then, of course, we recorded another album, which gave us a kind of sense that we were at least trying to be relevant rather than just part of the heritage trail and the nostalgia trail, which, of course, we are part of. But I wanted it to be a little bit more than that. So we were arrogant enough to try and do a new album, which I think worked really well for us. So that really helped, you know, doing all the songs that you would have wanted to hear if you came along to that gig. But then they threw in maybe three or four new ones that you would, unless you'd heard the album, you would never have heard. So that made it a bit more exciting for me. But beyond that, just the energy level was really high. Hmm. And also the desire to find a way to communicate, taking the piss out of myself, obviously, and the band and the audience. I love taking the piss out of the audience, you know. And then I think in Cardiff, I offered the whole, the whole audience out for a fight in the car park. <laughs> <laughs> Which would probably be a very bad idea. In, uh, with, um, you know, Maybe not such a good idea. Audience, but, but it was a laugh, you know, and people understand. I'm only joking and it's great fun. And, yeah. and like I said, I want to see lots of other bands who came from that time who have reformed and um, people who came after us. And I don't really get a good vibe when I go and see them. I, I get mm. the feeling, I'm not going to name any names, but I think you probably know who I'm talking about. I, I just think it's a money-making exercise. It's yeah. not really about the joy of the songs, the desire to m meet people. For example, we played Brighton on a few nights after Cardiff. And... Um, I don't know if you remember, we definitely did it in Cardiff. We, um, we had a, a thing called Skids for Kids. Hmm. And when we were on tour with Absolute Game, when we were coming to play in Cardiff, we'd find a school in advance, speak to the headmaster and say, we are the Skids, we were on top of the pops last night, and we, we would like to come and play in the schoolyard at lunchtime, do five songs in the back of a lorry. And the teacher was like, as long as you don't swear, hallelujah, let's do it. Yeah. So we would we'd pop up at a school without the kids knowing, on the back of a lorry, they would, a lot of the kids would recognise us from Top of the Pops and do uh, and do these songs. It was absolutely an amazing thing. And the reason I wanted to do that is because when I first started with the kids, most of the venues that I played in, uh, Tony, I wasn't I wasn't actually legally allowed to go in because I was so no, young. No. So I did something right very early on that we used to do a matinee in the afternoon in the venue with the bar closed and then come back and do the gig in the evening, you know, like at the Sheffield City Limit Club or whatever. And the other members of the band hated that because that was doing too good today, you know, and, yeah. and it was nattering for them. But I loved it. And then when we got so, you know, much, much bigger, you know, we're playing big, big venues, um, we, we couldn't really do that. So we decided to get in the back of a lorry. And we did it all over the UK, man. It was great fun. And a lot of these people... That was the first time they ever saw a band live. They'd be like 14 or something. And the Skids were the first band they saw. And, and what the, the great thing about that tour we were just talking about, when I came to Cardiff and, and, and one particular evening in Brighton, a lot of those people have been coming to see us because we split up not long after that. So they never got to see us live. So this was their first opportunity to see us mm -hmm. live. And the nicest thing they said is we certainly didn't disappoint them. But... But the thing that I loved about it was hanging out with them afterwards. Yeah. Because it wasn't like they were fawning. They were just kind of very interested in, you know, my story. But I was more interested in their story mm. and what happened to them and, you know, what, how their lives had been shaped. So it was great to hear. 
I mean, listen, all the stories weren't happy stories. Some of them were very sad. I mean, some of these guys had a lot of personal problems, you know, with drugs and alcohol mm. or, you know, failed marriages or stuff like that, you know, lots of social problems. But a lot of them had done really well. So, and, and Brighton, the whole class came to the gig. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. It was just amazing. So the, the, the all some of them lived in Australia and far away yeah. and they all got back together and got tickets for the gig and came to see us. So it was that was just magic. Fantastic. Magic, yeah, brilliant. Magic. And to hear their story. So, you know, I went for a wander along the pier and had some fishing ships with them and stuff afterwards. And they were amazed by that, going, Well, you know, you're you're jobbo and I was going like, Come on, man, I'm I'm the same age as I'm a little bit older than you guys. And come on, who gives a shit about the skids apart from us? Do you know what I mean? So let's calm down with all that <laughs> kind of thing. I don't give a monkeys about any of that. And it was just great. It was a great thing. But, you know, so these things come full circle again. All these little things you do that actually meant something to me at the time. But it meant a lot to those kids who stood in the playground watching the guys they'd seen on that very influential show at the time, you know, Top of the Pops. Mm. the night before and there they were in their schoolyard battering it out and diving about for them it's great fun yeah i think uh i think the diy punks thing you know from a, people of our age it, it sort of stuck with me all my life you know that you know you you've got to get up you've got to do it yourself mm. and we're probably from similar area, areas in in terms of uh the demographic i mean we, we've got a lot of coal mines in wales obviously there was a lot of uh unemployment there was um i mean I mean, I left school in the middle of uh, Thatcherism, just started, and unemployed straight away. There was nothing. There's nothing to do. No, you know. So I think that punk thing gave you belief in yourself and that confidence in yourself. It was great. That's right. Absolutely, hundred percent. And I think nowadays, bands, the bands that I'm, you know, I still like to go and see bands, uh, but um, a lot of them are quite posh, <laughs> you know, and yeah. they're yeah. and they've been funded from the bank of mum and dad, you know, and. Um, mm. It's a different thing altogether. I think where where you and I came from, our backgrounds, it would be very, very hard to be in a band today um, mm. from that background, if not impossible. Very true. Yeah. Because, wow. because how do you make a living from it? Do you know what I mean? It's not. It's just not possible uh, to do that. And the the cost of playing small venues and hiring mm. the van, putting your gear in it, you know, it's just it's just too difficult. You know, and um, mm. you need incredible amounts of self belief. But most importantly. There's no two ways about it. You need luck, you know, and mm, definitely. it's been lucky. We, 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 we came along at the right time and all the component parts just worked, clicked, you know. Uh, those bands needed a front man. Those bands needed a great guitar player and those bands needed an incredible drummer. You know, these were the three essential ingredients. Mm. I've never never really understood the bass player part, Tony, but the rest of it... <laughs> I'll tell, I'll, tell, I'll tell my friend Tony that actually, who's in a band yeah. with me. You love that one. Yeah. Um, so, so I think uh, I think we just we were we were lucky. We did the we were just doing the right thing at the right time, and and I think the moment we did uh, into the valley on top of the pops, the next day our lives were changed. You know because mm. it was a full on performance, mm. and um, I remember we flew back to Scotland the next day from London. And we got to our rehearsal space, which was a little garage, you know, just next to a, a, a high school. And there was like 500 kids all hanging around the garage because of the performance the previous night, you know. And, mm. and people were shouting at us as we walked down the road after the rehearsal. Not always nice things, I might ask. But I'm <laughs> that anyway. And your life had changed, you know. And, and something you had done had connected with people in a, 
much wider way. And um, suddenly young kids in, in, in Wales, North and South Wales and Liverpool and Manchester and Newcastle and Leeds suddenly got a chance to get a real feel for what you were doing. And, and it just worked because, as I say, we went from playing relatively small clubs to playing pretty big venues. I mean, the last gig we ever played before we split up was Hammersmith Orient, I think, you know, so mm, it's pretty, um, mm. it pretty big and it was sold out. And it's, you know, we associate Hammersmith Orient with David Bowie. We don't associate with a bunch of little shits from Scotland, you know, so yeah. it was, um, it was an amazing evening. And, and also we split at our, when Stuart left when we were at our peak, um, which is a shame, you know, he went on to do his own thing with Big Country and I, I you know, I understand um, why he did that, but, um, and Big Country's music was very commercial, but it didn't have the edge that the Skids had, you know, and uh, I think um, it was more his thing, it was more romantic and um, maybe there was a kind of more obvious social commentary in their music. And it was very Scottish, you know, that kind of... Mm, yeah. Um, indigenous thing was going on there, which, I mean, I like folk music, but I didn't really want us to be a Scottish electric folk band. You know, I wanted us mm. to be, always have an edge. And I think we've still got an edge, even now at our age. And, uh, you know, uh, it's sad, I mean, it's sad what's happened at the moment because I was so looking forward to the tour this year because we were doing a lot of new stuff. And, um, and we also got into the habit um, since the last couple of gigs of doing a medley of other people's songs. You know, I really loved doing it. So we were doing, we had prepared a lot of stuff, you know, like crazy stuff to do as encores and stuff. But anyway, there you go. Such is life. Mm. Well, just, yeah. just to finish the fan bit, because I know Steve's got lots of questions. No, that's all right. No, bring go some pictures so, in. Uh, we got yeah. the, uh, I went through the old vinyl. So we've got um, Scared to Dance, uh, Days in, Euro in Europa, all of this. But, that wasn't really why I was going to say that I bought the vinyl, so I'm a fan. But it was quite funny because I found this one, and I've got that thing that people do. I've kept it in the cellophane, <laughs> which is really sad. But it says special offer on it, three ninety nine as well. So I even left the label on there. But uh, but I think yeah, there's versions of this in Europa. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's a there's a kind of mythic controversy around that album that we had to change the sleeve. That's not mm. the case. Uh, it's because there's two different mixes. Um, Virgin Records, our record label, didn't like the mix that Bill Nelson did. And they got somebody else to come and remix it. And we said, well, you can do that, but we want to make both of the albums available. So they were always available. Yeah. Nothing to do this kind of um, bullshit about it being a controversial sleeve. Uh, it wasn't controversial in any way whatsoever. It was because no. there's two mixes. The, the album that you kept in the in the um, plastic, keep it in the plastic. Yeah, because the other one's a better mix. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of pre press about the. Uh, I think some of the images and stuff uh, at the time, but also we've got the uh, the absolute game, which of course is coming up to forty years. And uh, and as you mentioned, it's got the uh, the extra album in there as well. So yeah, uh, so yeah for all of the album in two days in Rockfield's rehearsal space. Hmm. Two days, which you would not, you wouldn't get it now, would you? Two days, no way. So we had no. two days, and we recorded it and mixed it in two days. It was amazing, hilarious. We <laughs> sent Virgin thought we were going to record all these new songs because Absolute Game had been finished way before that, 
and we gave them all these instrumentals and strange abstract songs. But anyway, it worked. People still love that album. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the, the 40th anniversary, I think, is a week tomorrow. I think that's right. Yes, yeah, it is. Um, yeah. We were going to go out this year and play a lot of the songs from that album, but we can't do it. But what I think we're talking about doing is we did, like I spoke to you earlier, I said um, we played a internet gig the other night, and, and it really worked. It was great fun. And the, we did an hour and three quarters, and it just flew by. So mm. we're thinking about doing the whole of the absolute game acoustically, if we can. Wow. As a, so that I'll keep you in touch with that, see what happens. Yeah, sounds really, really good. What's it like for you, Richard, playing playing a live stream gig as an experience? The whole band get together, you sort of socially distancing, how does it work? Yeah, of course. I mean, we're abiding, you know, yeah. we're, we're, you know, who knows who's vulnerable to this, you know what I mean? So exactly. incredibly careful. Um, so we mm. did all of that. Um, but we each had a, an individual camera on us, so we never had to oh, okay. kind of get that close. Mm. But I, I thought it would be difficult because of, I, as I say, um, like to communicate. But actually, I found it easy. I was just telling stories and, and, and you know, having a laugh, really, and, and being serious when I needed to be serious. So th there's no doubt in my mind that it worked. It really, really worked. It was, um, and I actually enjoyed it. I didn't think I would enjoy it, but I, I really did enjoy it in the sense that it was a new experience. I was very skeptical, and I came out the other end of it feeling really good. So... I'm going to do it again. As I say, we're in conversation about doing another gig very, very soon. And it's going to be the whole of the absolute game acoustically. If it can be done, I'm not sure it can be done, but we're going to give it a go. If you can notice in, in Tony's background now, some of the shots he, he took of uh, the gig at the tramp shake, he was, he was in the pit for a, for a while. Was he? Yeah. yeah. So some nice shots <laughs> coming up there. Somebody gobbed on me in Cardiff. I bet it oh, dear. Oh, it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, That's the only the only gig on the whole tour. Because mm. normally, like when when we first got back together, we played. Uh, I think it was Newcastle, and um, and it was a big gig, you know. And I bet it was packed, sold out. And that was the first time we ventured into England to see if it would work in England rather than just in Scotland. And um, the promoter came to me afterwards and said, "Listen, man, it's like this is like a Bay City Rollers gig." I went, "What do you mean?" He went, "There's like." 500 people at the stage door waiting to meet you. I said, you're joking. They said, I'm not joking. You want to see it? It's like, you've got to go out there or they're going to have to call the police. And I'm like, are you taking the piss out of me, mate? And he went, no, I'm serious. Go and have a look. I said, how many of them are women? He went, none. <laughs> 500 big sweaty Geordies. So yeah. when we put it hard, if I noticed, it was probably the only gig apart from Dublin where the skids attracted, you know, some attractive Welsh lassies. So there you go. There's got people following in Wales. Yeah, apparently, apparently, listening. the um, the ratio of good-looking females in, in, in Cardiff and South Wales is apparently quite high. It's never done me any favours, but apparently it, it, it is. <laughs> Who oh, knows? They're very um, I'm talking about women. Um, my wife uh, came to see you uh, when you played in Oxford uh, fairly recently. Uh -huh. I'm not sure whether it would, would this have been an acoustic tour, maybe? Uh, or with the band? I think it was with the band, actually. Oh, yeah, I can't remember. We certainly played uh, electrically in um, Oxford. Was it the first gig of the tour? Am I right in thinking that, maybe? It may well have been, yes. Yeah. 
Um, but what she said was really nice because my my wife um, is absolutely obsessed by music. She she just lives lives for music, and um, she without embarrassing you, but no doubt it does. But she just absolutely totally loved your performance, and what really resonated yeah, very much. What really resonated with her was your what appeared to be just an absolute joy to be on that stage and to share share what you do with an audience. You know. Yeah, well, I think that's absolutely it. There's, not, there's nothing more to it. There's no, you know, kind of magic bullet here. There's no alchemy. It's just mm. really a kind of love of being able to relive the songs, you know, and and do them justice. I think we're actually playing the songs better now than we ever did because we've got two guitars. The skids always needed two guitars. And mm. um, I used to play rhythm guitar towards the end, which I hated doing. I really hated it although I could do it, obviously, because I did. Mm. I didn't like it because I just felt it, it stopped me being free on the stage, you know. So with the two guitars now and, and some keyboards, it's just been great. So I'm free and, you know, I take the piss out of the way I move on stage myself, you know, and yeah. uh, it's ridiculous. A man of my age bouncing around <laughs> trying to do backflips, but it's, um, it's just great. Cause I think the music just grabs me and I go with it, you know. There's not been one gig since we got back together that I've not done that every night you know I just mm. I just do it even when I've not felt 100% or whatever I just get on stage and get on with it because you know the adrenaline kicks in and it's just a magic experience but anyway thank you very much for that because she's she's right it's a very joyful experience and it's a really great thing to know that that's communicating with people oh yeah to totally yeah Th thanks thanks for that she she'll love that by the way I'll tell her I'll tell her later um, but um, I noticed some of, some of the bands that you said where you, you, you kind of really enjoyed and, and you mentioned um, the Alex Harvey band, of course, you know, and uh, as a kind of a fellow countryman and, you know, Glaswegian uh, Alex, what do you, what, what, was, what, made, what, made, what made Alex Harvey such a great performer? What made the band work for you? Um, well, I think Alex, apart from Iggy Pop, probably the, the best frontman I ever saw. And I, I liked his mixture of um, self, he was very self-deprecatory, you know, he really took the piss out of himself. But at the same time, he was, there was a toughness there, you know, and oh, yeah. um, and, he, and he also, a lot of the characters in the, in the songs were like what we now call graphic novels, you know, but they were more comic books, you know, like yes. kind of almost yes. like he was the bad guy from a Marvel mm. comic rather than the good guy, you know, so... I loved, I loved all that. I loved the mythical gangs like Fambo. And to be honest, I never really was sold on the music. The music was a little bit, kind of could be a little bit too heavy for me or a bit mm. progressive, you know, in rock terms mm. on occasion. But Alex is a front man. Was, I, you know, apart from Iggy Pop, I've never seen anything like it. So that was an inspiration to me. And, to, and it was the ability to move from a snarling aggression into you know something that was very very funny and uh he did that with great dignity i mean the first time i saw him he played he was supporting mott the hoople and he smashed a big hole in the stage in edinburgh and mott the hoople had to come on in their big platform boots and their big funny hairdos <laughs> and walk around this big hole that alex had smashed in the stage during bamboo yeah. and uh it was just hilarious because uh, yeah. me and my friend uh, this guy called budgie we had gone along to see Alex, we weren't in the slightest bit interested in 
Mot the Hoople, although Mot the Hoople has some really good songs, mm. we were there for Alex, you know, and uh, mm. and I remained a fan. I mean, I, m I met him just before he died, and it was a mm. great honour to meet him. He was a great guy. I mean, obviously, he, he was old school in the terms of drinking alcohol, and I, I don't know about drugs, but he certainly drank a lot, you know, and, yeah, yeah. and old school Glaswegian. I'm from the East, I'm actually not from Glasgow, so no. they're just made of tougher stuff, do you know what I mean? They're really yeah. tough city, and and uh, he was he was proper Glaswegian. Well, just to say a couple of quick things on this, because we're talking about you, but you know, it's also about your love of music. When, when I was in school, I'm just a little bit older than you, about uh, um, nine, ten months older than you. And uh, I know you've got a bit significant birthday coming up uh, quite soon. I had mine in January, yeah. So uh, in school, I remember across our, the wall of our school, across the gym, Bamboo rules, okay, and uh, Saab, just everywhere, just painted everywhere, all, all, all over the school. And then later on, I got to um, see Alex play a couple of gigs. And at the time, if you remember, he had an all Welsh backing band. Uh -huh. uh, towards the end, he had a, a, a yeah, bunch of guys right. from, from, from Wales playing with him. And a mate of mine thought he knew the drummer, um, Colin Jock Griffin, I think it was. So we, we managed to go and see a gig. And I saw him in the space of a couple of weeks, Richard. It's quite interesting and also sad. Uh, one of the gigs, I can't remember which way it ran it was, one of the gigs, um, Alex would, came in, uh, came on stage, he was uh, a consummate performer, fantastic gig, mesmerizing, unbelievable performer. Another gig, I was waiting, we were trying to get in on the door, and uh, a gentleman was dragged past us with his feet on the ground by a man either side and taken through the door, and that, that was Alex. And then uh, the gig started, and um, he came on, kind of collapsed over the monitors, the curtains came across, and then when they went back, Jack Bass was singing. And Jack Bass, he recently drunk. passed away as well, actually. Is that because he was drunk? Yeah, yeah, off his head, yeah. sad to hear. So it's sad. Really, yeah. um, uh, even, even my contemporaries, the people I played with, like Stuart Adamson, you know, he died a very sad death mm. from alcohol abuse that led him to take his own life. John McGeeck, who had my second band with the Armoury Show, same thing, you know, died of his body just gave in because of the amount of abuse he gave it through um, drinking drugs. I never believed the myth, you know, I never believed the myth that you needed to be wasted to go on and perform. And you couldn't do what I do if you were wasted. It'd be impossible because you need to be fit and strong and and uh, to, to survive 90 minutes of that kind of hard um, physical graft on stage, you know, and uh, so I never bought into the myth. The myth to me was always idiotic, and I knew that from an early age, it was idiotic. So it was never the thing that I was looking for. But the performance was my drug, you know, the performance thing, and still yeah. is. You know, yeah. it's been reborn, you know, and um, it, that was what I needed. I didn't need any help to get to that. Cause no. The idea of just getting on that stage in front of people was enough. Yeah. But it's sad, though, you know, I mean, Alex, as you say, you know, was a massive influence on many people and and he was underrated when people talk about great performers you never hear his name being mentioned it's always the same thing david bowie iggy mm. pop you know mm. you think you know wait a minute what about alex harvey you know he's right up there and totally. i think the people that know know do you know what i mean it's yeah. uh mm. sometimes journalists are they get caught in the and what's happened do you know what i mean and you suddenly go I mean, I've had people say that Tom York from Radiohead is the greatest performer they've ever seen. I'm going like, like, what do you mean? Performer? You know, he's like, I mean, I know he's in the songs. I get that. I mean, I know yeah, he yeah. performs the songs, but 
he himself is not a performer, is he? I mean, he's, he's kind of, he's, he's much more of a guy who's a bit of a, he's in that kind of shoegazing domain, you know, and, um, and there's an otherworldliness about it, but he's, he ain't a communicator, is he? No, and it's interesting um, with you and your kind of like like Tony alluded to earlier. You know the kind of lyrical content of the stuff you write about. If you think about Alex Harvey, and you've, you've identified it there, it's very cartoon like. It's very, it's very it's full of this imagery. You know the strappy shirt and the characters, and yeah. you know right. even framed. You know written written in the context of a kind of a mythical uh, kind of a, a military experience, actually. And yeah. the, the stuff that, that that you that you write about. Um, it's very kind of literary. The stuff that you do is not—it's not the normal. It's not the bog standard stuff, you know. It's important. It's so important to you what you write about lyrically, isn't it? But it is. I mean, it's also important to write it in a way that—that that for me is more of a representation of the way I think and like to the kind of books I like to read. And I'm a voracious reader, and mm. was when I was in the skids. I mean, if you think back to Scared to Dance, what you might add was. Oh, we've lost sound on Richard. Richard, we've lost lost sound on your mic, unfortunately. And whether it's moved on the desk. Uh, I think it's muted. Ah, Can you yeah, there we yeah go. you're back. Yes, you're back. Yeah. Okay, what I was saying was, um, uh, to Dance," the debut Skids album, um, was produced by David Batchelor, who was the Alex Harvey producer. Wow. Okay. And he was ear gas. Alex's first band, David was in that band and also the producer of that band. So we've got a, a, a long connection with Alex. I mean, mm. Into the Valley was produced and arranged by David Batchelor. And, uh, you know, he knew about my love of Alex. So he, he kind of gave me room to maneuver in the songs and make them a little bit more arty for one of a better mm. term in places. Um, but certainly, in lyrical terms, I was a voracious reader, and 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 scared to dance had quotes on the back of it by Jean Paul Sartre. Hmm. You know, and that's not the kind of thing you're meant to do if you come from a housing estate in a <laughs> part of Scotland. You know, I mean, that's for the kind of educated um, metropolitan people, not for you know us backward um, uh, sons of miners. So. Um, I didn't really care about that. I don't, I've never really cared what people's impression of what I was doing was. I mean, recently I was asked to go on a BBC One show uh, and they were doing a piece on um, songs that nobody really understood the lyrics to. And they wanted to take the piss out of Into the Valley oh, alongside yeah. other songs. And, mm. and they said, would you come on? I said, no. And they went, why not? This, this is a big show. You know, millions and millions of people watch it. It's like the biggest show on the BBC. And, and uh, I went, no, I'm not coming on your show to laugh at my own song. And the, the, the lyrics of Into the Valley are about my mate who couldn't get a job and ended up in Northern Ireland because he joined the British Army. You know, I'm not going to mm. come on and laugh at them. I said, you can do what you want. I can't stop you. But, and I won't, I won't be watching your program anyway. But, so it's irrelevant to me. And then the, the, phone, the producer phoned back and said, I hear you don't want to come on our show. And I went, yeah, why are you calling me? I've already told you I, I, don't, I don't want to come on your program. I'm not interested. But... The presenter has personally asked for you to come on. I says, well, tell the, per the presenter to fuck off. I don't, <laughs> I don't care about your program, and I'm not going to come on and mock my own song, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I haven't been a little bit, you know, pompous about it. I said, if I was in a room with you just now, mate, you'd be lying on your back because I'd have knocked you out right now. 
So go on, piss off, and don't call me again. <laughs> it's just this idea they have that that because it's the media that anybody will be mm. willing to do anything, yeah. which is fortunately the case these days. Mm. That people are willing to humiliate themselves to to have a little bit of a profile. But I was very protective of those words because yeah. they mean a lot to me, and um, and mm. I know in some people's eyes they're abstract but i released a little book actually to coincide with the last tour called no bad words and what i do i put all the lyrics of all my songs in there and i've done little breakdowns of oh, what, yeah. what i was on about you know and it's, it's mm. a lovely beautiful little book done by this little independent publisher who does really great stuff with jason from sleaford mods and the and the people from crass you know he's, he's mm. really a great pop culture publisher and he does things very beautifully it's called bracket press and they did a lovely book and and so i was allowed to really just say this is what i was thinking about when i was writing masquerade or this was what was in my mind when i was writing working for the yankee dollar or whatever you know so um it's uh it was a good opportunity to just put some of these things to rest but you know i mean everybody's allowed their opinion i, I don't have a problem with that i don't even have a problem with the people on that particular uh, BBC One Show uh, called the One Show, um, taking the piss out of my song. I don't care, but I'm not going to join them. I guess is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, yeah. Well, I to to totally respect that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and to like Tony and I, you know, because we, we, we said earlier, we both came from, grew up in different parts of Cardiff. You know, I mean, neither of us are kind of posh boys. You know, and uh, I suppose we're both we're both working class really i mean that's what that's what we are and um does that uh, just a quick quick uh, very quick story uh, richard i went to an event with a professor right uh, at some really nice kind of building in the middle of nowhere for for a weekend conference and um i felt it like a fish out of water to be honest with you i mean i work in a university but i, I just felt totally out of it and i just and, and he jokingly said his name's hamish fife by the way a nice scottish name and he said, oh, uh, thank you for coming to my house. And he was just joking. And I, I just said, oh, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what, what, what a working class chap like me is kind of doing. He said, listen to me, never, never be anything but proud of, of, of being working class, you know. And it's, it's just kind of association, like you said, between, you know, intelligentsia. Well, that should be the posh boys. And why, why you know? Well, I mean, unfortunately, that is completely correct what you're saying. But at the same time, that cultural snobbery is, I mean, if you look at, you listen to people on the BBC, you know, BBC Radio 4 and the way they talk about culture, it's only because recently we're through Black Lives Matter that they've started to look at young black writers and, mm. you know, young, you know, people who are, or even older black writers. But it's almost, if you're a kind of, at this, in this current era we live in, if you're a, white working class writer, there's no way through, you know, you've got to find your own way through because you're never going to get appreciated on those kind of programs because their attitude to you is like, you don't really deserve to be here, you know, because that's, it's a kind of closed shop. It's a cabal. Um, and that's another beautiful thing about, you know, um, lost Richard. Can, you uh, can you hear me? We can hear you. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. I disappeared. Am I yeah. back? Yes, okay. you're back. Sorry, right. the wrong thing. Anyway, um, uh, what was I saying? I was saying, um, yeah, doing the gigs has given me an opportunity to because I've written, you know, um, some novels now, and it gives yeah. me an opportunity 
opportunity to get them out there. And it's an amazing way of marketing my books. I don't force them down people's throat. They're, they're beautifully, they're beautiful looking books and they're very, very inexpensive. And, um, you know, I tell people about them. It's up to them if you want to buy it or not, but it's a great way of doing it. And people do buy them, you know, and it's great. And the response is great. I get to talk to people about it. So I found a way of getting my books out there that I might not have done otherwise, you know, with the help of, you know, the, the kind of people that do these culture shows, because it's just mm. the same people that are on those shows all the time. You know, yep. you, if there's a, a discussion about, you know, it's just, it's almost a joke. You can have a, a you know, you know who they're going to have on before they even do it. You go, if they're going to be talking about working class writers in, in Britain today, they'll have one like A.L. Kennedy. You're going like, what's she got to do with this? Do you know what I mean? She doesn't understand what it's like. Why don't you have John Cooper Clark or someone on like that? Yeah, you know, yeah. Who actually has lived it, who knows it, who is it? And mm. actually, he's a bit of a genius. I still love John deeply yeah. and, and, and love his work. And st I still think there's a majesty to what he does that has never been... The people from that other walk of life wouldn't have a clue what to deal and what to do with uh, somebody like John Cooper Clark. It's almost patronizing the way to deal with their idea is more like someone like Nick Cave because he's got a kind of mystery to him. In in my new book that I've just finished, there's a whole section that's um, set in Berlin and it's called Fuck Nick Cave. One section of it. And, and it's really because we take our cultural norms from what other people are telling us to do rather than going out and finding it. When you were young, young, you went out and found the music. No one was telling you what to buy. No, there was no, you know, there was no social media saying this is what you need to do. You have to yeah. do this. You yeah. went. Out, it was word of the mouth. Your mate may have had something. You would have heard it around uh, his house or her house. You'd have gone. I don't really like that. Or you heard something else. You go. I love that. And then off you went. Or you did that for somebody else. And that's the way our generation communicated. And in many ways, it was much better because you made your own mind up. You know, it wasn't your mind wasn't being made up for you. And that's what worries me sometimes because. You know, I read a lot of contemporary things. That I'm, I watched a movie the other night that got five stars out of five in The Guardian. And I watched it. And after 50 minutes, I knew I hated the film. You know, I absolutely mm. hated it. It was boring, badly done, dreary, morose, you know, everything that I just loathed it. And you go, yeah. how did five stars out of five stars? You know, I'm not a stupid person. I mean, I'm trying to work out how this happened, but I couldn't do it. So talking about not being a stupid person, which you're clearly not, of course, is uh, you actually got an honorary doctorate from, from uh, uh, Edinburgh in the university. Uh, how, was, how was that an experience for you? Um, I'm not sure what I think about that. I mean, it was kind of fun and uh, it was a fun day out. I've never, mm. ever used it. So I've never, <laughs> ever, you yeah. know, signed off a letter, mm. Dr. Job. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But, you know, it was a nice thing and, and um, oh, it was just a nice day out. I, I don't, I'm not sure what I think about that kind did, of thing. You know? Did you have to sort of create a, a speech for that, though, did you? I did, yes. But um, I, I was, uh, my speech was really about achievement, about how you coming from where I came from, where you guys are from. Yeah. No one was ever going, listen, here it is. Here's the route. You have to make your own way in life. And, you know, you get a little bit lucky sometimes, but you also get a bit unlucky sometimes. You know, I've been as unlucky as I've been lucky. 
But I've kept going. I've never given up. And even, you know, today, before I was chatting to you guys, I've mm. been working on a new book and writing. And then um, this, I'm, we're working on a new Skids album. We're doing a covers album, actually, at the moment. Great. So I was learning Brilliant. some of the songs. Yeah. Um, I mean, a real lovely mixture of stuff. Like I was learning com Complete Control by The Clash. And nice. then I was learning The Light Pours Out of Me by Magazine. And um, these are an example of the kind of songs we're doing. You know, Young Savage by Ultraball. Not what you would expect, I don't think. It's going to be a really nice mixture of different things. So that's the next project. So I've been working on that as well as writing. Got up early. And, um, and as soon as I finish with you guys, I'm going to go and have a cup of coffee and a bit of breakfast. Okay. I'm so, so, so I won't keep you too long, but uh, <laughs> fascinating talking to you. Great. Really, really, I'm just really. I'm, I didn't know as much about you by any means at all as Tony does, and it's just just really interesting. I don't, I don't think we've even touched on the film side of things yet, but we obviously uh, we don't want to keep you from your coffee. But but no, yeah, well, I, no, let's do another one. I've really enjoyed <laughs> you guys. Yeah, that would be fantastic so, if we could do another we, one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously in Bowie and all kinds of stuff. It's just so yeah, much, so much stuff. Find, we can talk my about. first novel, The Speed of Life, is about two aliens who come to Earth to find David Bowie. Yeah. How on earth so, did you come up with that idea? I, well, I'm a, I'm a boy fanatic, and I, I wanted to... It was a love letter to boy, really. I just wanted to yeah. write something that was... Uh, and he knew about it, because my old manager is a guy called um, uh, Ian Grant, and his partner was Alan Edwards, who also managed us, and the Stranglers. And Alan has been David Bowie's PR right up until the day David died. So I had a direct contact with Bowie. And so I told him I was writing this book about two aliens coming to Earth who were these very beautiful, elegant, identical, non-gender specific aliens. Because in their planet, they heard a song by Bowie and they went, what the hell was that? And it gave them a tingle that they'd never had before. So they decided to go in and um, find out what that's all about. So they arrive on Earth looking for Bowie. Um, so it's a really sweet story, you know. It's a kind of love letter to him, but done in a, in through the eyes of these two strange creatures, and um, and he knew about it and was really keen to read it. But sadly, he passed away before yeah. he could. Did you get uh, to meet him? I never did. No, and it's strange. I've, I've been in the same room as him many times, but I never had a chance to talk to him. Unfortunately, mm. uh, Lou Reed I met because we the Skids played his birthday party in New York. And that was a very interesting experience. David Boyd was actually at that party, but yeah. again, we were we were doing a gig. We were the we were the house band that night. Um, and, and yeah, I met some of the people that I've, I've you know I tell you who I met recently who are really like me. You know, and he, on the on the subject of being, uh, we're chatting to two fine Welshmen today. Is um, James from Manic Street Preachers? Oh yeah, known. yeah. And. Um, I'm a fan of the band, you know, I've, I think mm. motorcycle emptiness would be in my, certainly wow. my top 20 of all time. Wow. I love that so much. Anyway, I was we were doing a gig and, and they were headlining. Mm. Uh, this was last year. And um, I heard them warming up. He does this kind of weird warming up thing. And, uh, <laughs> and I went, that, is that the guy from the Mannix? And they said, yeah, yeah. So when he came out, I said, oh, hi, uh, I don't want to take your time. I know you're, going on soon but I'm uh, the guy from the Skids Richard Johnson he goes no 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 he said I know who you are the Skids are one of my favourite bands of all time and I didn't know that that the Skids were a big deal for James so we sat down and talked and he's a super intelligent 
Oh yeah. Job. Uh, very generous, you know, to mm. uh, to me, and he's very kind in his um, compliments. Yeah. And uh, we got on like a house on fire, and I really, really loved meeting him. And so recently, someone sent me a link. He did a thing on YouTube down during the the uh, lockdown of his top ten songs, and one of them was a skid song called "A Woman in Winter," and he talked right. about the song in detail, what it meant to him. And he also I have a movie also called "A Woman in Winter." And he talked about the movie. He'd seen the movie. So it was like, I was really quite taken aback. But um, the respect is mutual. I'm a big fan of them and uh, a big fan of him. And as I say, Motorcycle Emptiness is on. I play it certainly once a week, if not more than that. Wow. Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised that you, you connect with him sort of intellectually, I really, because, I mean, he's fantastically well read he's he's, he is, yeah. he's yeah. very much a working class hero really it came from blackwood blackwood in wales you know it's not exactly uh new york you know i mean i, I yeah. think the man couldn't come from anywhere else is part of what they're about you know yeah I, th I think that's really well put i mean i think that's the problem you know if you unless you come from you know the big city mm. um people take you slightly less seriously that happened at the skids the skids were from a rural mining area and um you know the people in Glasgow and Edinburgh were a bit snooty about us, um, but we did that we used that to our advantage in many ways. But but anyway, James was a great guy, and and um, I, I was really I had no idea he was such a um, the skids had a big part in his early life when he was a kid. You know? Yeah, that's 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 a that's a really lo lovely story, actually, isn't it? Uh, that uh, it's nice, uh, Tony, for Richard to meet. Um, James and for them, you know, to, uh, to have to have that uh, connection. Yeah, definitely. We're, we're going to let you have a bacon sandwich now, Richard. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think we've, I'm feeling guilty about it now. No, no, no worries. But I'm, uh, I started the day very early today, so I'm. Uh, yeah. And apologies for technology. Not no, quite... no, at all. No it's, problem. That's where that's where we're at. It's been fantastic yeah. to speak to you. Really. Yeah, really... Well, let's do it again. You know, let's have part two. Great. Talk movies and stuff in the books maybe but yeah well, either the book or the new album you know, yeah. whichever you know we'd, we'd yeah. love to do that yeah we'd love to do that okay it's been it's been an absolute pleasure richard thank you so much thank you very much guys catch yourself okay take thank care you. now cheers bye, bye. Richard. cheers bye-bye diolch am brando i yfm am fwy o gynnwys fel hyn i ddilyniad lein ac i ar y ni wybod beth hoffech chi gwywed nesaf it's yyfm.com. Thanks for listening to YYFM. For more content like this, to follow us online, and to tell us what you want to hear more of, visit itsyyfm.com.